Good morning, South Hills, and uh, thank you for joining us uh, online. For those of you who are at home, as we continue in our uh, study in uh, Joshua, if you take your Bibles and turn to uh, Joshua uh, chapter 2, I want to talk this morning about how God uh, delights in telling strange stories. When you uh, read through the Bible, have you noticed how many strange stories there are? They're sort of stranger than fiction. But they're powerful stories. Strange lives. William Faulkner was the great American storyteller. You know, he never graduated from high school, but they led him into college and he never graduated from college. One writer says it this way, he grew up in a small town in the poorest state of the Union. He wrote in such a way that his postage stamp of native soil was transformed into a stage where the truths of the heart were exposed for all to see. In fact, He wrote so powerfully and so poignantly that he won the Nobel Prize for literature. When asked about the literary people he knew, Faulkner would shrug his shoulders and say he didn't know any literary folk. The people I know are other farmers and horse people and hunters. We talk about horses, dogs, guns, and crops, not books. I'm a farmer who likes to tell stories, was what Faulkner said. Have you noticed that God's the great storyteller? He's a cosmic storyteller. He tells stories that are are strange, about people who are ordinary, people who are wounded, and people who are flawed. People who struggle with hope and wrestle with shattered dreams. People who feel trapped by wrong choices. And people who are desperate to experience his grace. Eugene Peterson says this, The culture conditions us to approach people and situation as journalists do. We see the big We exploit the crisis, we edit and abridge the commonplace, and we interview the glamorous. Whereas the scriptures and our best pastoral traditions train us in a very different approach. They ask us to notice the small, to persevere in the commonplace, and to appreciate the obscure. You see, God works through ordinary people, flawed people, to accomplish his purposes. This morning, we're going to look at one of those stories. It's found in Joshua chapter 2. It's about Rahab the harlot. It's kind of a, a spy saga, if you would please. And I'd ask you to think about how a group of old soldiers sitting around a campfire would repeat this story. 
Just let your imagination wander there for a second. Group of soldiers talking about how the hooker took down her hometown. You're all looking shocked at me. The Bible repeatedly calls her Rahab the what? The harlot. What's the word we use instead of harlot? Hooker or prostitute. God tells strange stories and he makes heroes and heroines That's some very interesting characters. When you think about Rahab, if you notice the the postscript to her name, it's Rahab the harlot. What's the postscript to your name? How do you self-describe yourself? Paul the loser? Or Paul the hothead? The alcoholic? The adulterer? The spendthrift? The irresponsible one? The liar? The abuser? The the list is endless. We all have names that we put at the end of our own name, don't we? Or that other people have put to our name, that haunt us, that define us, that even cripple us. You see, uh, Rahab was marginalized by society. As a harlot, she was shunned by other women. She was used by men. But here's the great part of it. She was loved by God. She was loved by God. God never saw the tramp of Jericho. That's not how he could ever view her. Scripture talks about her as the daughter of faith, doesn't she? doesn't it? She's in the hall of fame. God tells strange stories and he uses flawed people to accomplish his purposes. You see, there's nothing that we can do or have done that will ever make God love us less. Do you believe that, church? And there's nothing you can do or ever will be able to do that will make God love you more. It's all grace. This is a story about grace. Let's explore the story because he delights in telling strange stories. Verse 1 is the commissioning. Then Joshua, son of Nun secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed there. It's a strange story. 
you've got to look at the progression of this in verse 1. It starts in, in Shittim. This is a place that is not a glamour spot in Israel's history. In Numbers 25, this is where the people of God had laid down with Moabite women and worshipped Moabite gods. And it's at Shittim that the story starts. That wasn't lost on anybody from the wilderness wanderings. And Joshua asked the spies to cross the river, to go over the Jordan. Last week we said that the river, the Jordan, always functions in Scripture as a separating obstacle. It separates the people of God from the people of the nations. It's, it's an obstacle. We're going to look at that a little more next week when it's at flood stage. But in Israel's history, to ask the spies to go across the river was to go to a place that had caused fear and had paralyzed the nation. And they'd been wandering around for 40 years because of it. And now they're back at the river. And two spies go out. Only this time, they come back with a far different story than the last time. You see the tension in the story? And then it's Jericho. Do you know Jericho is the lowest city on the face of the earth? The lowest inhabitable city on the face of the earth. And it may be the oldest inhabitable city on the planet. We at least know that there were people there 11 centuries BC. It's, it's an old city. And it's a fortified city. It is both powerful and it was paranoid. See how the storytellers building tension in the story? And then where do the people of God end up? At the hooker's house. The people of God. They go into Jericho. And they go to Rahab's house. Was it a tavern? Was it a hostel? Was it a brothel? It's on the wall of the the city. God tells strange stories. It was certainly a place of double talk, probably a place of intrigue, but that's where the people of God went to uh, hang out. You see, Rahab is the quintessential other. She's a Canaanite. People of God were to uh, 
separate themselves from the Canaanites. She was pagan. She she was no Jew. She was no believer. She was a, a woman making her way in a man's world. And she was a prostitute. She survived, she even thrived by selling her body. Do you you get a sense of the tension in this story? And she lived in a place, her home backed up to the city wall. You see the distance that the storyteller is is putting in this story. God tells strange stories. In fact, when you uh, start to look at this, you you see something really interesting in verse 2. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. The king knew they were in town. So the king of Jericho sends his message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, I left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up to them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under stalls of flax. She had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. There's a certain uneasiness about the place and the person. But now the city's locked up. The spies are trapped inside the foreign city. The king has sent the police of Jericho to investigate. Talk about the Keystone Cops. If you, th- if you think about this. They asked the harlot... To spill the beans. What's the likelihood? The prostitute and the police. Have there ever been a good relationship? She hides the spies. And then she crafts a story to protect them. See... The second point of this is, do you see the concern in the story? And it's all about protecting the spies. She says, I don't know where they came from. I don't know which way they went. I do know that they left around dusk. And by the way, boys, I believe you can catch them if you leave right now. And what do the police do? They leave. They believe her and they leave. They search outside the city on the route across the Jordan. The gates are shut. 
and the spies are locked inside. They've laid down in the prostitute's house. The king is after them. They have sent the police on a wild goose chase. And the gates are closed. They have placed themselves in the hands of Rahab. Do you feel that tension? And you know where we get stuck on this passage? The whopper she tells. That's where the discussion lies. She told a lie, didn't she? And we wonder, why would God sanction that? How does she get in the hall of fame? A harlot and a liar. I want to tell you it's really easy to get sidetracked trying to answer does the end justify the means? I think you miss the point of the story if you do that. Because this is about the unfolding drama of redemption. That's the point. And God fulfilling a promise to give the people a land. This is a spy saga. It's full of intrigue. The deception is stressed to magnify the risk that Rahab takes in hiding the spies. And in facilitating the advance of God's kingdom. That's the focus. It's, there's sort of a parallel here, if you think about it, to the Hebrew midwives in, Mo, in the Moses story. Now, I could spend the rest of the message talking about the whopper. And you know what? Some of you want me to. But that'll miss the point of the story. There's a lot of plays on words in this story if you uh, look at it, particularly around the Hebrew word to know because it has both the idea of knowledge and the idea of sex. And there's a great play on words in this story. But notice the confession in verse 8. So she's gone up, she's hidden them. And in verse 8, before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof. And she said to them, I know the Lord has given you this land and that great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when he came out of Egypt and what you did in Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. 
When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven and above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and my mother and my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives. The man assured her, if you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. See, most times when Rahab went to visit somebody at night, it wasn't to make a theological confession. But that's what happens here. Do you hear what she says? She says to them, I know that Yahweh fulfills his promises. And she rehearses for them Israel's history. She'd heard the stories. And there's a twist now. Remember the spies? When they came last time, they were fearful of the land. Now what happened? The people at Jericho are fearful about God. That's a change in this story. And then she she says, I know Yahweh is God. He is Lord over heaven and earth. And I'm aligning myself with Yahweh. I'm trusting God. And I'm trusting God in such a way that I've hidden you from my hometown people and from the police. I'm siding with Yahweh. This is powerful. And I want a promise from you. Loyal love for loyal love. You show loyal love to me, I'm showing loyal love to you. Loyal love, grace. Grace to you, grace to me. The spies had to be uneasy about the promise they were about to make. Because the Bible forbid making agreement with people of the land. Wasn't the lie that made them uneasy, that was saving their bacon. This was about violating the text. But you see, there's another text that comes into play here. It's about the inclusiveness of the gospel made to, in a promise to Abraham. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be what? Blessed. This is the outworking of that promise to Abraham in Rahab. And then, do you see the the second concern in the story? 
starts in verse 15. Now the concern isn't about the protection of the spies. Now the concern is about the protection of Rahab and her family. And and here's the question. Does the deal between the spies and Rahab get consummated while the spies are dangling from the rope out the window? Or is it made before they get on the rope and go down the window? Read the text and see if you can work it out. Because I'm not sure. I could see a, a woman of the night with the rope and the boys dangling on the bottom and making sure she was covered. Now, some of you are looking at me going, this is a little too mm for me. But I ask you to read the story. We've got to let go of some of our sensibilities on this. This is real life. This is raw. This is messy. This is people's lives. The spies say to Rahab that all the bets are off if you don't hang the scarlet cord from the window when we come back. The cord's got to be in the window so as we know where you are. Does that remind you of another story in the Old Testament? The blood over the doorpost in the Exodus? The scarlet cord looking forward to what? Calvary? The source of her safety, of her rescue, was a scarlet cord, just like the blood over the the post was in the Exodus story. And looking forward to Calvary and is the sign for our rescue, isn't it? What Christ did for us. And then she, then they say to her, you've got to keep all the family together and the family's got to be in the house. If the family's in the house when we come back, we protect them. And if something happens, that's on us. But if they're outside the house, all bets are off. And you can't betray the confidence You can't let anybody know about this deal and about us and about what could transpire. That's why I'm telling you, this is a spy saga, isn't it? And the guys go down the rope and they head to the hill country and they hide there for three days. The Jericho police come back. When the, the roads are clear, the, the spies head back, cross the Jordan, and report back to, to Joshua. Listen to the words in verse 22. And when they left, they went into the hills and they stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. 
Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, the the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. That's a very different spy report than the last time 40 years ago, isn't it? What they say to Joshua is this, the land's ours. The enemy is no giant. And the obstacles are not overwhelming. Fear is not drowning out the divine voice as it so often does. This is people who are trusting. And we get ready for a crossing into the promised land in chapters 3 and 4. You see, God delights in telling strange stories about flawed people who accomplish his purposes. Rahab, in the end, her story doesn't finish in Joshua 2. She marries a nice Jewish boy. She's freed. We find that out in chapter 6. She marries a nice Jewish boy, has children, and settles into the life of the community. You say, how do you know that? Read Matthew chapter 1. Who's in the genealogy of Jesus? Rahab. When you look at the genealogy, there's something fascinating in the genealogy. It's not Rahab the harlot in the genealogy. It is in James. It's Rahab the harlot. It is in Hebrews chapter 11. It's Rahab the harlot. But in the genealogy, it's not Rahab the harlot. It's Rahab the mother of. And she's one of four women who are listed in the genealogy of our Lord and Savior. I think there's something fascinating about that. She's now the mother of. It's really a positive handle, isn't it? But do you notice who her son is? He's Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. It's Jesus who's King of kings and Lord of lords, who's light and life. And any other postscript you want to assign to Jesus' name that the text gives us. It's a powerful story about redemption, isn't it? God redeems, and he often redeems people whose lives are messy, and all screwed up. I was one of those people, weren't you? See, the trouble is, often 
in church, we think we're better than other people. It's a very subtle thing the way it happens. But my life wasn't as messy as Rahab's. Therefore, I mustn't be quite as bad. Sin, sin. Mine mightn't have been sexual sin. Mine was just another sin. This is a story about redemption. And you know what? In Hebrews 11, she's part of the faithful cloud of witnesses. She's in God's hall of fame. And there's a whole lot of other people who don't get in that list. Powerful. Why? God tells strange stories. But think about the flawed people God uses. Abraham was old. Jacob was insecure. Leah was unattractive. Joseph was abused. Moses stuttered. Gideon was poor. Samson was codependent. Rahab was immoral. David had an affair and all kinds of family problems. Elijah was suicidal. Jeremiah was depressed. Jonah was reluctant. Naomi was a widow. John the Baptist was eccentric, to say the least. Peter was impulsive and hot-tempered. Martha worried a lot. The Samaritan woman had several failed marriages. Zacchaeus was a traitor and was unpopular. Thomas had doubts. Paul was a murderer and had poor health. And Timothy was timid. That's a list of misfits, isn't it? God tells strange stories, and he uses flawed people to accomplish his purposes, doesn't he? He uses us. You see, Rahab's story is all about hope for us. It's a movement from an unbeliever to a seeker to a believer. It's the movement from a prostitute to a bride, isn't it? The story of redemption is all about God making prostitutes into brides. Isn't that your story? He took you from sinner to saint. That's my story. God is all about redeeming stories. I'll joke with you sometimes about um, being an Australian and so my relatives are all convicts. (laughs) I have an uncle. He went to jail for robbing a bank. He was the getaway driver and he couldn't start the car when the came out the bank with the goods. <laughs> My uncle Ron went to jail. He became an alcoholic. He had a terrible life. And he met a girl later in life who loved him and who loved God. And her love and God's love 
changed him. My Uncle Ron's about 82 years old today. And in the town where he lives, the police call him when people end up drunk in the jail because Uncle Ron has a way with uh, alcoholics. And he'll go down and he'll help them and he'll tell them a story and he'll help them get sober and he'll take them to AA and some of them find Christ. His is a strange story. And I've just given you the edited version of it. It's a powerful story. At the end of Babe Ruth's career, in a game between the Cincinnati Reds and the Boston Braves, Babe Ruth had made a number of errors. It was right at the end of his career. It had cost the Boston Braves five runs. And as he walked off the field, he was booed off the field. Babe Ruth booed off a baseball field. Fans are merciless. And there was a little boy in the stands who couldn't stand to see the babe booed. And he jumped over the fence and he he ran up to the babe and he just clung to his legs amidst all of the jeering and the catcall. And the babe pulled down and picked him up and just hugged him and then put him down and patted his head and the stadium went silent. Why? Because they just witnessed the grace of a little boy who loved his hero and everybody goes silent when they see amazing grace don't they there's real power in grace see God changed my story from Paul the loser to something rather wonderful. He's been changing your story too. He has a way of doing that. It's called grace. And no longer do we have those postscripts to our names. But you know what we have now? My child, my son, my daughter, my bride, the one in whom I am well pleased. It's powerful the way God uses strange stories about flawed people to accomplish his purposes, isn't it? If we're going to be a church who is intentionally missional in this community. It's going to get messy. Because people's stories are, are, are messy. And, and for some people, that's a little uncomfortable. 
But if South Hills is going to make an impact in the Tri-Cities, we've got to get involved with people with messy stories. And the gospel is about transforming messy stories, isn't it? And hopefully next week we've got an exciting announcement for you. But when a new pastor comes, they're going to want to get involved with people who have messy stories. Amen? Because isn't that what you want? Don't you want to see people come to know Christ? Or, or do you just want to transfer other believers from other places? Who usually bring their unhappiness from somewhere else. That's not always true. But you know what I'm saying. But we want to see people come to know Christ, don't we? You want to see conversion growth. And you want somebody, a pastor who has a heart for that. The person we've been looking at has that heart. And I know you want this. It's been wonderful to be here with you all. And over the next few weeks, let's see more people. Let's share our faith. Let's invite them into our small groups. Let's be people who address people's strange stories and tell them about a Savior who changes lives. Amen? The Lord bless you and the Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and God himself be gracious to you. Lord, lift you up and turn his face towards you. God himself give you peace.